Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. With another presidential election behind us, or at least coming to some sort of resolution as I record this intro at Check's Watch, 10.15 p.m. on November the 4th, 2020, the day after the election, talk will inevitably turn to the economy and how the president, whoever that may be, will handle it. After all, as the raging Cajun James Carville quipped in 1992, it's the economy, stupid, that often matters most to American voters. That begs a series of questions as we turn our thoughts back to the 18th century. How did early Americans think about the marketplace and the economy? How did they believe that they were supposed to function? How were the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and their aristocratic overlords supposed to relate to one another in the marketplace? And how did early settlers map older European ideas about the economy and the public good onto the North American landscape? On today's episode, Dr. Emma Hart provides us with a framework for asking and answering these questions. Hart is the author of the new book, Trading Spaces, The Colonial Marketplace and the Foundations of American Capitalism, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019. She is currently Senior Lecturer in History at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, but she will soon begin her tenure as Director of the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Hart helps us to understand how early Americans participated in the marketplace and the origins of our own capitalistic society. And we'll get to hear a preview of what she has in mind for the McNeil Center. Now, before we get started, just a reminder that if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like and rate the show on your favorite podcast provider. And with that, let's enter Trading Spaces in the Colonial Marketplace with Emma Hart. I mean, it's just so exciting for me coming from the periphery to the center, so to speak. <laughs> that's, that's true. It's funny, you're talking about centers and peripheries, and, and you know, you've written a book about the early American marketplace, which is encapsulated in centers and peripheries and thinking about mm. transatlantic exchange and formation of a marketplace uh, where one didn't exist, at least in the ways that Europeans understood it yeah. uh, in the yeah. colonial period. So what, what motivated you to write this book? And and I ask in part because I was really taken with your your introduction where you talked about um, a gentleman who had an issue with Cafe Nero. For listeners who uh, might not be aware, Cafe Nero is kind of like a Starbucks type chain in, in, in Europe, which they make a great flat white if you're interested. But uh, this gentleman had an issue with the fact that, that Cafe Nero was not paying sufficient taxes and was not contributing to the public good. And, and that was kind of your launching point into a, a larger discussion and setting up the book about the creation of a colonial marketplace. And so um, I imagine you already had ideas about writing this book long before mm-hmm. we turbo capitalism, I think is one of the words you mm-hmm. use in, in yeah, the book. Yeah. Um, but what else was inspiring you to write this piece? So I think it was, you're right, the, the, the idea of the public good and how uh, markets should always have that in in view was something that was is very interesting to me but i think the sort of even before i I came across the importance of this idea and i i came you know i i talk about the public good and the common good because people at the time use this phrase Mm -hmm. all the time and so that's why it struck me as being important to the process of market making in colonial america but the reason why i first came to the topic i think was it, it comes out of you know me being a, a British scholar of early America, living in the UK, and being surrounded by historians who do early modern European history, and then also being a scholar who's very interested in the the 
evolution of a, of a commercial society in 18th century, in the 18th century Atlantic world. So when I looked at, you know, what had been written by historians about the commercial society in the Atlantic, what I saw was, you know, much excitement about the creation of consumer society, sort of wonder at the ease at which transatlantic commerce sped up in the 18th century. But then when I spoke to my colleagues in early modern history, and when I read about the English and the Scottish marketplace in the 18th century, I saw a place that was intensely local and was really caught up in like local power struggles, local politics, um, local hierarchies, you know, where the aristocrat ruled how everything worked in his neighborhood. And so my overwhelming question then became, so how did this really local marketplace transfer to North America? Mm-hmm. Because that was one of the other things that stri- strikes me as a as a Brit as a Brit who actually grew up in a part of the UK in the Midlands outside Leicester, where the landscape is really typically British twee. It's everything is very small, you know, the houses are very small, the fields are very twee. And so then when I went to America, what struck me, and I went to the US for the first time when I was 10, and what struck me was how huge everything was. And so then my question was, well, how do you transfer this incredibly local market to this enormous landscape mm-hmm. that looks nothing like what you're used to is, and is on a whole different scale? But that became the driving question for the book. And a lot of historians were writing on uh, consumer politics. Uh, you know, I'm thinking in the American context, uh, you know, T.H. Bream's Marketplace of Revolution, but also looking at sort of big macro economic developments or economic mm-hmm. historical trends. But you were really looking to find the spaces between where these local interactions are taking place on much more intimate scales. Absolutely, because, you know, what I realized was that uh, from reading work on on European marketplaces and talking to colleagues who are working on that kind of thing, is that, you know, these these large scale processes are important, but ultimately, you know, an early modern society is one in which it's not easy to move vast distances or to grasp these vast processes. Mm -hmm. And it's actually you know, making markets like many other things at that time is a face-to-face process. And so I also, you know, thought was missing from the discussion mm-hmm. about colonial markets. And I wanted to to put that back in there. Now, of course, you know, there are some historians like Ellen Hartigan O'Connor, who's, who've also done a very good job of doing that, you know, with mm-hmm. her focus on women's economies in revolutionary Newport and Charleston. Uh, she started to look at some of these connections between women in local economic transactions. But I felt there's a, there's a much sort of bigger story out there that I wanted to tell. You know, we do want to dive into how this all plays out in North America in your study, but I thought maybe we could look at what early modern ideas of the market look like and, you know, how these local markets function, who's participating in them and, and why, why do they think that they speak to this idea of the common good? And, and even, I guess we, we ought to define what the common good means for people in mm-hmm. this period. Yeah, so uh, like I said at the beginning, you know, I, I ended up using or honing in on this phrase public good or common good because it came up all the time in lots of the sources that I was reading, both in America and in Britain, I should say. But in a, in a British context, the common good was a, was a concept that was actually used to kind of hold society together. It was a term that, as I said, was invoked frequently. Mm-hmm. 
And when the common good was being adhered to, society was harmonious. This was the, the mm. general feeling. And that meant that, that society was fair. It was moral. Uh, mm -hmm. People were godly. They were virtuous. So the society that worked for the common good didn't necessarily imply equality. And that's mm -hmm. a really important thing that uh, we need to point out. You know, I'm not saying that everybody was in it together, so to speak, <laughs> because the beauty of the phrase common good was that you could interpret it whatever way you wanted to. Mm -hmm. So like the common good of the aristocrat is not the same common good as the as that of the peasant or, oh, the, sure. you know, the, the rural laborer. But at the same time, you know, it was a concept that allowed everybody in society to have their place. Mm -hmm. And also to, you know, if everyone was working for the common good, the aristocrat knew that he had a duty to the laborer and the laborer knew that he had a duty to the aristocrat. And so this idea is still very much current in the 17th and the 18th century when the colonies are being settled. Um, and it's, it's also, as I said, it applies to the whole of society, but I think it's especially important to a commercializing marketplace because, of course, it's when commercialization happens and this idea of the common good starts to be tested that mm -hmm. people then start uh, emphasizing it as the, the raison d'etre of the marketplace, you know, as the, the ruling sentiment, the ruling structure. And so you see lots of people talking about the common good in the marketplace and how commercialization is is meaning that trade is no longer fair that mm -hmm. people are are breaking the rules um to charge immorally high prices and this will be a discourse that's very familiar to historians of new england because it's been focused on it's been discussed in the colonial context mm -hmm. in, in the new england context but it was also very important still in old england in in the 17th and the 18th century. And the other reason, the final reason why, why the common good is really important to my story is that, the, the, that contemporaries in Britain found that the best way of making sure that marketplaces work for the common good was to make them a fixed space. Because obviously it's much easier to make people deal fairly, morally, justly, if you're watching them. Mm -hmm. And they all have to come to a specific place where they follow a common set of rules in the marketplace. And so that means that places like marketplaces, provisions markets in towns, fairs, um, which are usually government sanctioned or uh, run by aristocrats, they all remain popular because these people who are in charge of governing know that they can watch over other people to ensure that they are dealing fairly in those spaces. So that's kind of form of regulation then. Yes. Um, and then commercialization really challenges that in, in a lot of ways, because uh, I think one of the examples you give is that people in London are drinking coffee grown in the Caribbean or Africa being uh, cultivated by enslaved laborers who themselves had been traded and trafficked. And so there's, there's a, a, it's difficult to see all the steps in that process then. Yes, it is. Um, and it, and it leads to some, 18th century merchants in in Britain kind of leading double lives in some ways which is mm -hmm. another thing that I found really fascinating and it also showed me how important the common good still was in 18th century Britain because I think a lot of historians have kind of underestimated that there's one wonderful diary uh, that I talk about from a Glasgow merchant um, called John Brown in mm -hmm. the book in his diary you know he talks about how he's very proud that he's become a member of the 
merchant guild in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And he is clearly, um, you know, when there's a grain shortage in the Glasgow marketplace, he's all for regulating the price of grain, doing his duty to help out the poor. And yet at the same time, you know, he is dealing in tobacco and, and, and shipping insurance. And so he's also involved in this kind of burgeoning commercial economy, which has none of the regulations he has to, he enforces in his local economic life. And yet they both exist side by side. But, you know, there's, there's increasing clashes between these two types of economy, I think, for people like him. Is Brown sort of self-aware that, that, that he isn't doing this kind of double dealing or is, it, is he just sort of reacting to the uh, changing situation and trying to graft old ideas onto an, uh, an emerging new order? Interesting. You know, I think I, his, his diary is definitely sort of his notes form rather than sort of mm. extensive reflection. Sure, sure. But, but I think, no, it's, what's striking is that there is no acknowledgement that the kind of principles he's applying to the local economy the kind of he's broken them already in his transatlantic trading and i think you know that's that's common of people in general i mean they're mm -hmm. very rarely consistent in their principles oh sure and they very much this is the other thing i i found fascinating as an early american historian about about um going into the british archives and looking at the british marketplaces that people are very very wedded to custom to mm. habit, to how things have always been done. And, you know, they, they often use the phrase, well, we've done this since time immemorial. And the implication being, well, we're not about to change our ways now because this is our right. I think it's very, it was very hard to change people's outlook on the marketplace. In, in thinking about that uh, and thinking about custom and tradition, we talked just briefly about how these, these local spaces sort of are themselves a form of regulation. Is there any kind of greater regulation uh, taking place at a at a larger state level. I mean, it, you know, today people complain that there is not enough regulation in the, mm -hmm. in the marketplace, or there's or there's too much regulation in the marketplace. Does the state have an active role in in governing these uh, smaller spaces? Yes, it does. I mean, there. So I think a lot of these smaller spaces are under, in fact, multiple local authorities mm. and even regional authorities the sort of landscape of institutions in early modern britain is immensely complicated as i'm sure you probably know and so in some places the marketplace will be governed by a manor mm -hmm. um a manor court which is a hangover from the medieval period but they are still active in the 17th and the 18th century in many places if it's in a town it will be governed by a city corporation it could be governed by a single aristocrat. I think there is one single aristocrat who's in charge of the whole of Manchester before it's <laughs> before it becomes a separate city in the uh, 18th century, before it's incorporated in the 19th century. And so there, there are, and you know, church courts are also still active. So I think people in these spaces are used to lots of people mm -hmm. trying to tell them what to do. Let's turn then to the, uh, to the North American, to the colonial marketplace. How well did these ideas map onto what Europeans encounter in North America? They're, it's not just them, you know, they're indigenous people there. They eventually start bringing in large uh, numbers of enslaved people to participate in this economy, although in a forced manner. Uh, what does this look like? How do they go about either trying to replicate what they had come before or mm -hmm. adapt to their new environment? Yeah, this is this is the beginning of my story. And what I what I found to be really 
fascinating is that there's there's a there's there's very much um it depends where you are in the social order mm -hmm. as to how how you how hard you try to replicate this marketplace these fixed spaces that work for the common good and so when i was looking at the papers of for example william penn who founds pennsylvania or or the laws proprietor who are in charge of settling the carolinas i find that that those leading gentlemen are very keen to replicate hmm. these kinds of institutions and fixed marketplaces. And Penn, in his multiple letters um, in the, the volumes that have been edited by Richard and Mary Dunn, he, he's constantly saying, well, we must have a good or a well-ordered marketplace. And by that, he meant a fixed marketplace in town. And he even expects Native Americans to come and deal in that marketplace mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. That's his expectation. And the laws proprietor in, in the Carolinas are the same. They legislate in their fundamental constitutions very carefully for port towns that are regulated by corporations, with marketplaces that are governed by municipal authorities. And they actually say that no trade is should take place apart from in these towns and that there should be markets and fairs that are exactly the same as the markets and fairs in, in Britain. And then, of course, these guys have some backup, although they're not on the same page about a lot of things. Many of the colonial officials that are sent out by the crown in the later 17th century also agree that the regulated marketplace is the way to go. Um, and so although they're advocating more for a what would be called a sort of mercantilist economy that's governed mm -hmm. by the Navigation Acts, which are put into place in the course of the second half of the 17th century, they're very much set on the same principles. So they're working to make sure that the market works for the king's interest, that, mm -hmm. you know, that the king is getting his right cut of trade. And the trade is performed legally, duties are paid, customs duties are paid. And, and they also advocate achieving this by fixing trade in towns and in port cities and in observable places. But then what's equally fascinating is that it's a complete failure. <laughs> Their efforts to, to recreate this marketplace are universally ignored by everybody else. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question is like, you know, yeah. how does how does it play out on the ground? And it sounds like not well. Not well, no. I mean, it's it's <laughs> quite uh, fascinating reading letters back to the uh, the Lords of Trade, which then becomes the Board of Trade at the mm -hmm. end of the 17th century, written by people like um, Edmund Randolph, who's one of the most uh, busybody crown agents that I, you come across. And it's just decades of frustration. It's like these people will not do what we want them to. They insist upon dealing in the most obscure coves. One uh, colonial governor of New York, one of my favorite quotes, he says that America is naturally cut out for unlawful trade because people can just, people can just in this huge landscape, they can just disappear mm -hmm. and they can deal where they, wherever they want with whoever they want. And that's also important because, of course, you know, ordinary colonists are just interested in 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 dealing. You know, they they need the things that they need. Mm -hmm. um, the, they need to make money. They need to survive, and they really don't mind who they deal with in order to make a living and to get their essentials. And this is where you know Native American and African traders come in because mm -hmm. to the ordinary colonist. 
these groups of people are a commercial opportunity they're not anything else but the opportunity to get a new coat or some tobacco or um or some some beef and so yeah. they will deal with anybody wherever who are some of the the people in your story i mean you've mentioned a couple already you know brown robinson uh, these folks but a lot of what you're interested in is what butchers are doing what local traders are doing um are there any particular characters that stand out in your mind that, that really represent the kind of, I guess, entrepreneurial spirit uh, that existed in that period, but also that intent to sort of just trade wherever the heck they wanted to and, and not worry about what uh, the great proprietors or, or William Penn thought they ought to be doing? Yeah, no, there's plenty, there's plenty of, um, of characters that I find. I think most of them are easier to find in the 18th century mm-hmm. because there's more abundant documentation there. And so it's easier to pick out, for example, Ed, Edmund Randolph because he's a government agent. Uh, but from the 18th century, uh, I, you know, I've got plenty of records of people who are doing, they're perpetuating the kind of dealing that happened in the 17th century already. One of the most compelling characters I came across was a, an enslaved one, well, then latterly free butcher and, mm. and meat dealer called Leander who lived in Charleston in the middle of the 18th century and in in the revolutionary era. You know, he really embodies this entrepreneurship because he manages to buy his freedom from a a white Charleston couple because he's saved up so much money by dealing in all types of animals that have, that come to Charleston. Hmm. And he, he sort of acts as a, as a middleman in dealing hogs and and cows from plantations and then he butchers them and he sells them on uh, to the Charleston population and he is he's bought by a Charleston butcher who he then is is allowed to buy his freedom from and he's obviously uh, you know cornered a lot of the the meat supply market in Charleston by the time you get to the revolution wow that's pretty amazing yeah, yeah. And uh, it actually leads to another question that I've been thinking about. A big part of your study focuses on Pennsylvania and uh, South Carolina. Other colonies are mixed in there as well. But I was wondering why why those two places? Um, you know, Why did you think that those were a good fit for your study and, and to help you say what you wanted to say? And, and, uh, and how did you make the, the choices? Sure. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. So I think, first of all, I realized that because the book relies and the study relies on really going into archives mm-hmm. and, and just digging around for any evidence I can find of where people talk about their everyday trade and where they traded. And it's really hit and miss as to where I will find this material. And so I realized that it was going to be working archive intensive. And so then mm-hmm. I thought, well, I'm going to have to just choose a set number of places. Otherwise, mm-hmm. this, is, this could be a decades long project <laughs> and uh, and so i decided then to choose pennsylvania and south carolina mm-hmm. because they were settled by europeans uh, or they were claimed by europeans at about the same time and both of them had quite substantial um, indigenous populations still at the time that they were claimed by europeans mm-hmm. And so that enabled me to kind of keep uh, a similar chronology all the way through the book. So when I say that, you know, that proprietors came in the 1680s and they tried to make markets, I can say that universally about both places, which helps to keep a sort of clear 
mm-hmm. story. It makes it easier to sort of tell the story. But then I think the other um, virtue of these two places is that they're actually very different. They develop into very different colonies. Um, Pennsylvania, of course, is a, is a nominally Quaker colony that has a, a majority European population with a large number of, sort of Germans and Scots-Irish settlers mm-hmm. who come in the 18th century. Whereas South Carolina has enslaved African people right from the mm-hmm. beginning and goes on to have a black majority in the 18th century. And then, of course, also has an economy that is driven by rice planting, uh, whereas Pennsylvania's economy is, is, is more varied. So it had the, the virtue of having lots of similarities, like they're both being big cities, Philadelphia and Charleston in both places, but also being contrasting enough, mm-hmm. you know, that I was able to show that the things I was talking about were things that sort of happened in, in quite different circumstances mm-hmm. and at the same kind of time and evolution absolutely yeah, yeah. well yeah. then you know maybe uh you know part two of the book you can go back and look at the rest of the colonies and yeah. take that take that decade yes <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah yeah no i think that's definitely something that the new england historians were keen for me to to do <laughs> exactly exactly pay more attention to their region <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> As speaking of, uh, of doing deep archival work, I, I mean, this is not a book where you're going to get endless tables and graphs and, and, and quantitative analysis of uh, gross domestic product or, or, you know, local rates of taxation. You know, you're really looking at the people who are involved in these uh, relationships and who are mm-hmm. shaping them and remaking them. And so, you know, what kinds of evidence were you looking at to tell this story? I mean, I, as I said, I, I would go into archives and just look mm-hmm. for anything that seemed to promise some detail about people's daily buying and selling habits because mm-hmm. that was the you know when when you're talking about local marketplaces and um, you're talking about you know being interested in people going to a tavern and buying a penny's worth of beef for dinner mm-hmm. or uh you know going to an auction and picking up a secondhand plow and these are the kind of deals which you just don't find in merchant account books necessarily because merchants, mm-hmm. you know, transatlantic merchants are often dealing with large volumes of goods uh, uh, circulating around the Atlantic. But but that doesn't tell you what happened to those goods mm-hmm. afterwards um, or how ordinary people engaged with the marketplace. So, I mean, I ended up looking at a lot of court records because obviously when people got indebted or when creditors tried to call in their debts you'd Mm -hmm. often get accounts of of some of these mundane deals so for example the pennies that people play paid to cross at a ferry um you'd get the ferry accounts and then it would tell you that you know when they crossed at the ferry they'd also bought a shot of rum and some supper and, you know, I ended up going trawling through a lot of court records looking for material like that. And then sometimes I would come across diaries like John Brown's diary, where people would actually talk about their daily dealing. I also used newspapers an awful lot because, of course, newspapers in the Atlantic world had very large advertising sections, mm-hmm. which are a goldmine for anybody who's interested in uh, day-to-day commerce. Oh, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff in those in the newspapers. How did the imperial crisis, the dispute between the American colonies and Great Britain, and then the revolution itself ultimately affect this marketplace? 
the final part of the book, I, I concentrate on that. And, and I have to confess that in the past, I saw myself very much as a colonial historian. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, well, I should stop before it gets to the revolution because that's <laughs> when it gets messy. Yeah. But I realized as I carried on with this project that, that I, could, I just couldn't do that mm -hmm. because what was really important was the friction or the, the kind of tension between what happened to this marketplace in the revolutionary era and the kind of setup that had emerged during the colonial era. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I um, sort of observed was that the colonial marketplace, eventually by the end of the colonial era, so that's to say in the 1760s, was very much its own sort of free trading uh, setup in some ways. Mm -hmm. So you have auctions, uh, newspaper columns, uh, ferries, taverns, places where people just deal freely without any regulation from the government. Mm -hmm. um, those those very much have, have, have you know expanded to be incredibly important to local trade. But at the same time, you do also have people beginning to argue, and it's usually white governing men, men who mm -hmm. are sort of part of the relatively the elites of each colony who were starting to argue that it might be a good idea to bring back a marketplace governed by the common good. Mm -hmm. And they're beginning to appreciate or, you know, the purpose, the use of ordering trade according to their ideology. And so in both Pennsylvania, but more so in South Carolina, because it's become a, a slave society by this point, you see these elite people saying, well, I think we need a law of the mark for the marketplace. I think we need to ban engrossing, regrating, and forestalling, which are the three great crimes of of the marketplace in in this era. That's you know selling things outside of the marketplace when mm -hmm. you're supposed to be selling them in the marketplace. I think we need you know uh, a proper market building built, and we need to make all of the enslaved fishermen go and sell their fish in this market rather than just walking around town selling their fish because we have realized that we need to control the marketplace better if we're going to hold on to the profits of it. There's a growing tension between the kind of sort of free trading culture that, uh, that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, property holders have for themselves. Mm -hmm. And then the increasing realization that regulated markets might be useful. But the problem is, is that when the imperial crisis hits in the 1760s, they haven't quite worked out which way they're going to go. <laughs> and so there's very, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dissonance between these two ideas of the marketplace. One is not uh, winning over the other necessarily. And so when uh, the, the market, the domestic market kind of collapses as a result of British taxation and economic depression, mm -hmm. there's no real answer. There's no clear answer as to what you should do about it. So the revolution kind of, you know, in my estimation, causes a reckoning. It causes mm -hmm. early Americans to make some hard decisions. 
about their marketplaces that they well, have been able to avoid up until that point. I mean, nothing like imperial secession in a war to actually make you force you to yes. make some decisions. Yes. But then the, the post-war period, though, it seems like, you know, Madison and, and Hamilton and all those guys who are watching the emerging order in the 1780s, and it's under the Articles of Confederation, it's not going well, uh, mm -hmm. and are thinking about trying to put the, the new United States on a firmer footing. They're really thinking about some of the larger issues that, it, that people have been thinking about all throughout this period is how do you structure, how do you, how do you give order to an economy, and in this case, in their minds, a national economy, that can contribute to this public good and to you know what they see as a as a good republic. Absolutely, yes. And what is really important is that this idea of the public good is you it becomes you know when in the sources you you start to see the word the phrase public good used more than the common good, although mm. they're very interchangeable. But mm -hmm. the public good is definitely more associated with a republican ideology. So you know in order to have a virtuous republic, you have to have a marketplace that works for the public good, mm -hmm. um, and it which is populated by citizens who are trading fairly you know, who are, are trading with their eye on the greater good of society. That sort of desire is backed up very much by state governments. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's part of, you know, part of what's been happening, what historians have been doing a lot recently is having a look at what state governments did in the 1780s. Sure. And that's really important to my story because what I see is that the, it's state governments who are legislating like crazy for a regulated marketplace <laughs> that's, that that works according to their idea of the public good and so whilst you know the articles of confederation are an unsatisfactory and sort of loose national government the states just step in and and start making laws of their own accord it's the marketplace it's local commerce that they're mm -hmm. really concerned with well how are the, the local participants then in, in this emerging order how do they how do they react to these changes or try to re-establish old norms or try to create new ones? I think what you what you see is is a um, the emergence of of a very strong rhetoric in mm. and I found this in newspapers and in sort of governing assembly well you know in, in state government minutes and discussions and debates of there's, so there's the the emerging idea of the responsible citizen who mm -hmm who polices the marketplace according to the norms of the public good. I think this is a very interesting concept is that you start seeing this phrase internal police. It's linked to this idea that the, the, for the public good to be affected, for it to work, you need conscientious citizens who are willing to be an internal police of good behavior. The sort of alert citizen, the, the active citizen, becomes something which you see discussed and idealized and, and celebrated much more in print in the 1780s. This idea of, of internal police of the marketplace doesn't actually, you don't see that phrase at all before the 1760s. And then it gradually, gradually sort of gathers pace until by the 1780s you have this vision of the local you know the member of the philadelphia corporation who is going out into the streets of philadelphia to check that the marketplace is working properly and <laughs> apply the regulations and in doing so he is the ideal citizen who is internally policing the marketplace Sounds like one of those lowly customs officials who were just trying to make sure people were, were keeping in line. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, and it's a great book. And I think anyone who has an interest in the, the foundations of American capitalism and certainly, you know, wants a firmer understanding of the historical origins of our own contemporary uh, capitalist moment will certainly appreciate looking at your book and just looking at uh, how regular people are doing business and what that leads to. I, and I thought we might close actually by talking about your next project, which is uh, not necessarily a book, but per se, but it is uh, assuming command of the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And so, first, congratulations, and uh, and and then two, um, what do you hope to accomplish there as the new director? Well, yes, it's um, it's a great honor to have this opportunity, and I'm I'm really excited to be to be taking over the reins from Dan Richter who's done so much there mm -hmm. to to bring the center to its current flourishing state and the things that I'm most excited about doing I would say well the things that I like most about the McNeil Center are obviously things that I want to carry on doing because I was a fellow there myself in 2016 mm. uh, and the wonderful thing about the McNeil Center is that it has so much space for graduate students and early career scholars and has postdoctoral scholars and so one of my goals is to carry on making it a welcoming place for graduates undergraduates and really and postgraduates and really the most diverse group of people possible that are interested in early american studies um it has a it has when you're there it has a sort of very democratic air to it and i want mm -hmm. to continue that i want to make it the most welcoming place to to pursue early american studies possible uh, but of course you know i think what recent events have made clear is that that can't and and perhaps shouldn't always involve in-person interaction yeah. and so sure. i think i think one of the the most important things that i'm going to we're going to begin working on this hopefully after christmas is designing a new website that oh, will have uh, lots of room for new digital initiatives and space for undergraduates and graduate mm -hmm. students to to you know have their own projects ongoing on the website but will also allow engagement with the wonderful community of early americanists mm -hmm. in philadelphia um, for people who can't actually make it there in person and i think i think the mcneil center can be a, a really sort of great mediator for all of the mm -hmm. brilliant things that go on in Philadelphia in early American studies. That's really exciting. And, you know, as we talked off camera before we started, the, the pandemic and the crisis has really led to a, a flourishing of, of digital creativity. Mm -hmm. And as I said, you know, at Mount Vernon, we were mainly focused on a Northern Virginia audience, but now we're reaching much further afield. And, and, and actually, you know, speaking of Philadelphia, I was really lucky to give a, a brown bag presentation to the American Philosophical Society the other day. And so, you know, something I'd, I'd never imagined doing, but the, mm -hmm. the virtual environment presented itself. So, very excited to see what you bring to the table digitally at uh, the McNeil Center and let us know if we can help in any way. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, I I think, you know, before this all happened, um, the pandemic, I was already keen on, you know, mm -hmm. connecting early America to a sort of global setting because I have done some work in global urban history as well. Mm -hmm. But I think that this makes it, you know, all the more possible and urgent to do that through whatever medium you can and and open open it up to scholars like you mentioned yeah before before you started talking that someone from venezuela had come to a mm -hmm. talk at yeah and and you know i just think that that is the fantastic thing that digital fora can can achieve oh yeah well congratulations on the book congratulations on a new gig uh we're excited to have you back on this side of the water and uh whenever you can make it 
<laughs> yes, in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, th- you know, thanks for coming on the show. And we'll and love to have you back sometime and hope to see you in person soon. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a great fun. Our pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.